Daniel and Pastor Ryan have also shared uh, that I am speaking in John 15, and I'm excited about that because John 15 is the passage in which the Lord woke up my dead heart. It revitalized something that had gone cold. And I I love church. I'm just going to say that right now. I I have come to love church. I miss it when I'm not able to go, whether I'm sick or I'm traveling. And so uh, that wasn't always the case. I grew up in church, and my family, we were a two-service family. I don't know if anybody else here is a two-service family, but sometimes your kids don't like the fact that you're a two-service family, all right? And so I grew up always going. There was never a season in which my family stopped going to church. And as a kid, I remember thinking, it was probably about junior high age, right when I started to, to separate myself from my family, I began to say things like, I can't wait till I'm older, because then I won't have to go to church every Sunday like my friends. And I don't know if it's the Lord's sense of humor, but he has called me to be a pastor, and I'm in church every Sunday. And there's no option. But that wasn't always the case in my life that I I have today of wanting to be in church, being surrounded by the family of God, by worshiping him together, by reading and meditating and praying and supporting and caring for one another. The life of the church, there was a time in college, there was one year specifically in which my heart was cold to the things of God. It was dead inside. I remember coming into chapel, whether it was at Biola, the Christian college, or the church I attended, and the congregations would get up and they would sing, and I could not push the words out. It was like the air in my lungs weighed 100 pounds. I couldn't worship. There was times when I read scripture, and instead of celebrating the promises of God, I became frustrated because I couldn't see them in my life. There would be times of prayer which I couldn't utter anything. I would try to pray. I would try to create some grandiose prayer, but the only thing that could come out was, God, why am I here? How can I possibly keep the faith when this is what I'm experiencing today? That was my life. That was for a year in college. While I was actually serving in a church at the time, teaching junior high students, I had a dry, hard heart. And then came a time in which I read John 15 three times a day for two weeks. And it revitalized a dead heart. And so when Pastor Daniel was reading up here, I leaned over to Pastor Ryan and I said, why do I even need to preach? Let's just read this again and again and again. And I immediately feel a sense of, uh, not necessarily insecurity, but uncertainty that the Lord should preach this, not me. And so this morning, I want to offer you those same two questions to be thinking as we go through this sermon, as we read through this passage. Why are we here? And I don't mean on the earth. I mean, literally, why are you in these seats today? And how possibly can we keep this faith? And I'm going to say it a little later in the sermon, but there's one thing that I would always think that's the hardest about being a Christian is that there's no days off. There's no retirement age. This is our lot in life. And we can either look at it with a negative perspective, like I was in that year in college, or I can see that as an absolute joy that we get to come before the throne of God each and every day and have life and have it to the fullest. And so as we're in John 15, I want you, those two questions, to be circling through your brain, asking the Lord, why am I here? And how can we keep the faith? Before we jump into John 15, I'd love for you to pray with me as we begin this 
Then we read God's word. Our Lord and our God, we ask for your Spirit's ability to see and to interpret and to believe what you have written to us as a love letter so long ago. Help us to discern what actions, activities, thoughts that we need to hand over to you or actions and activities and thoughts that we need to begin to apply to our life. It is in, it's for your glory in which we read and we preach, we hear and we listen. Uh, but may your spirit be the teacher this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come to John 15, Pastor Daniel shared with us last week this amazing reality that our home is to be with God. We were created to be in his presence, and God and, and Christ may have been leaving them, but he was ultimately promising, I'm going to come and make a home with you. And the disciples throughout this week, you've got to realize the roller coaster that they've been on to this point. They had this emotional high of the triumphal entry, where they are walking in with Christ, who's being pronounced and proclaimed the King, the Messiah. And so they're excited because they're going to be co-regents with Christ. They're his inner circle. They are um, uh, uh, King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table, if you will, if you want to get that picture. But as the week has gone on, that high has dwindled to say the least. And Jesus himself is the one who let the air out of the room. As he goes into the temple, as he throws over tables, as he angers and upsets the people and the religious leaders. And now we get to this night where Jesus is telling them, I am departing from you. I am leaving you. And so they are distraught. They're asking questions. What do you mean you're leaving? Why can't we follow you? Just show us the Father and it will be good enough. Why are you going to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus is giving them some answers, but they probably aren't receiving them to the full extent that we do because we see in hindsight. And so as the disciples are asking Jesus this question, they ate a supper and he performed um, the washing of the feet and he gave them the new covenant And now in this time of limbo in their life where the disciples have some grasp that I'm leaving, but they don't quite know the extent of the pain that they're about to endure and that their master is about to endure on the cross, Jesus says, let's get up and let's go from here. And so they get up from the upper room and they leave. And they're walking through a probably semi-quiet city on the eve of Passover. And as they're walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is ultimately going to be arrested They pass by the temple. And within the temple is this massive curtain that has been up for years and years. And wealthy Jews have added to it and given gold and silver. So it's an ornate uh, curtain. And in one corner, stretching all the way down to the other corner, is this massive grapevine, all made out of gilded gold. And wealthy Jews have donated different pieces of gold to create grape clusters, some as big as a person. And the reason why they made this ornate picture of a grapevine, because it always had represented Israel. Scattered throughout the Old Testament is this representation that the nation of Israel is this fruitful grapevine that God has planted to produce fruit. However, in each one of those circumstances that is mentioned about Israel being a vine, it's how poor they were as a vine. It's how bad a job they did at producing fruit. If you look at Psalm chapter 80, and in Jeremiah, there's two sections in which it says, you produce worthless grapes. God often showed them that their production as his people, that he intended to produce healthy, fruitful grapes, they failed at it. They did a poor job. They couldn't meet the mark. And Jesus, as he's walking by this, issues these words. 
In John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. You were already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing apart from me. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and withers. And he ga- they, they gathered them and throw them into the fire and they were burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. As a disciple who is hurting, who is confused, this is a reassurance to them. But it's also a direction that he's giving them. I am leaving, remain in me. Now notice he says, I am the true vine. That's in representation to what Israel thought themselves. He is replacing Israel's image with himself. I am the true vine. And it is through me in which fruit is produced. But notice, we have a vine and we have a gardener. Gardner's the Father. God the Father who has orchestrated every one of these events, who is willing this to happen. And this gardener has some expectations. In that time, the, the health of the fruit of a vine was represent, represented the value and worth of the gardener. If the gardener did a good job, his fruit was healthy, it was good, it was succulent, it was worth eating. If the fruit wasn't that good, it reflected poorly on the gardener. Our God and Father is not a lazy farmer or gardener. He will produce the fruit he intends. And so when we read verse 2, it looks like it's saying, uh, can you lose your salvation? Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And then you read later in verse 6, they're thrown in the fire and burned. This isn't a have salvation and lose salvation at all. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen that Jesus has many disciples. There are the 12 that he chose, but there are many disciples that have followed him throughout his teaching and his ministry. And, but there was a certain instance, and we read that in John chapter 6, verse 66, after he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they wonder, how can he say this? Was it say in John 6, 66? Many left him never to return. So there have been people throughout ages, and maybe even here in this room, that have followed Jesus for a time, but inevitably left because they never partook in the vine. They never truly followed Jesus. It was maybe for a moment. Some people went and followed Jesus in that time because of his fame. It was exciting to be around him. Others, for selfish reasons, they wanted more bread, more manna. They wanted the ability to be a co-regent with Christ. Others followed him. Like Judas, they had the wrong expectations. They thought he was going to be one thing. He became another. And so what we're having in verse 2 is this declaration that there are those who will be around Jesus, but there are only a select few who will abide in Jesus, who will remain in him because they truly do believe. They believe. They have received his message. They've received his teaching, and so they produce fruit. 
And so belief in Christ's message brought the disciples to salvation. But how would they remain in him? Notice verse 3 says, you were already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So what we go on from here, we're not going to talk about a salvation issue from here on out. We're talking about a remaining faithful in Christ issue. How do I keep the faith? How do I continue in this Christian life? How is it possible as my master departs that I can continue in this? And so he gives it very simple. We must remain in him. And so what does it mean to remain? It means to believe, cherish, abide. All of those are captured within this idea of remain. And so we came to Jesus through belief, and it's through belief in his message that we remain. There's no magic formula to discipleship. We believe and we obey. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is quoted saying this in his book, Costly Discipleship, only the believers obey and only the obedient believe. So what must we continue to believe in and to obey? And we can just, let's just use this passage, if you will. And actually, we look at one right before. So what must we continue to believe in, which translates into remaining with Jesus? The first one, we must believe in the integral and ex- the internal and external care of the Father and the Son. That in our relationships, in our life from here on out, we have the Holy Spirit who resides in each and every one of us that is nurturing to our hearts, but we also have the Father, who's the gardener, externally pruning what needs to be pruned so that we may produce more fruit. Now, remember that year I was telling you about that was really hard? When I would read Scripture and I couldn't understand the promises of God? When I would read verse, that second part of verse 2, it says, and, those, and the, those who do bear fruit, the Father prunes that it may produce more fruit. Do you know how I interpreted it and read that pruning? I read it as consequences. Like, oh, shoot, this is going to happen because I sinned. The patriarch of my family, my grandfather, who, who is the, a center of faith for me that has raised and trained me up and taught me so many things, I assume because of my sin, like he, the Lord's going to take him soon. I just know it. Man, talk about an, an oppressive belief that leads to this uh, uh, desire to separate myself from the Lord, not draw near to him. Pruning isn't that way. Pruning is not painful punishment. It's purposeful production. Pruning is not painful punishment. It's purposeful production. The Lord is externally producing greater faith and greater obedience in us. So we have the Spirit on the inside and we have the, the, uh, the Father on the outside externally helping us to abide. Next, what are some other things that we need to believe? Number two, that we're already saved. You were already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. This idea of losing salvation or going in and out of the grace of God needs to be something we remove from ourselves. That should not be a part of our identity. We are already clean because of the word he's spoken to us. This actually comes just previous to this, what Pastor Daniel preached on last week in John 14. He said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. We need to believe in the peace of Christ. What he offers us. It's an internal peace despite the uncertainty and hostility of the world around us. We believe that we can have a peace, a a consistency of heart and mind that Christ offers us. How about the unconditional love of of Christ? In verse 8 and 9, the same love that, that that God has for Christ, Christ has for us. Now, what kind of love is that? It's unconditional. It doesn't pertain to our actions. See, that removes the whole idea of the pruning being a consequence. 
I mean, certainly there are some consequences to our sin. I'm not trying to e- erase that. But bad things happen to me is not a result of my sin. It's, it's a result of God's planning and purposeful production in my life. I'm already clean, and I have the unconditional love. And then he ends in verse 11. We need to believe in the joy that the Lord is offering us. Now, joy is not happiness. We need to separate those two things. They are completely different. Joy is far superior than happiness will ever be. Joy is a foundation. Happiness is just something built upon that foundation. And so joy is this contentment in the life of God that he has for us. And the fact that he died on the cross and he has saved us and removed us from the penalty of sin and eternal separation from him. Do we have joy in that? And is our joy made complete? And so if those are the things I'm supposed to believe in, aren't there pitfalls that prevent us from believing? Prevent us from abiding and remaining in Christ? Absolutely. And you know what the number one is? We avoid the people we offend. We avoid the people we offend. Anybody here remember, either in high school, whether it was you or your friend, you were in this awesome relationship. You were, you were going to be soulmates forever. And you go throughout the weeks and you're dating. A two months goes by and you, that, that love, the luster there starts to wane and all of a sudden you break up. But you met this person through a class. And you walked to class together. Then all of a sudden, after the breakup, what happens? All of your habits change. You take a different route to class that day. And just so happens that other person takes a different path and you run into each other again and you pretend like you don't know them. You act as if you've never had a relationship with them before. It's because we offend one another. And we don't like to be around the people we offend. We distance ourselves from our people we offended. Isn't this similar to Christ? When we are convicted of sin, when there's something we've done, isn't it hard to go before him and to repent? Because we think of simple things like, I'm not worthy. I, I, I shouldn't go back to him. This is the exact opposite of what Christ is presenting in this passage to the disciples. Regardless of what takes place in your life, remain in me. Come back. Stay with me. Remain close to me. Recognize the next time it happens when you feel that you've offended Christ and you want to distance yourself from him or you should stop coming to church or you sit in back and don't want to participate in worship for whatever reason, this passage is undoing that idea and that belief and replacing with the correct one, abide in me, that you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. That the pruning is purposeful production. It's meant for something great in your life, to produce greater fruit. And so obedience is a means of experiencing Christ's love. And the reason why I say that is because we believe, but then he's also telling us at the end, if you obey my commands, you will abide in my love. And so on the surface, that looks like a transactional relationship. It looks like it's conditional. It doesn't look and seem like it's unconditional. However, our sinful mind and our sinful nature has distorted what commands are to us. We received them with some pain and uncertainty when they were never designed that way at all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Obedience is not something people offer Jesus. It's always Jesus' gracious offering to people. Obedience is not something... People offer to Jesus, it's always Jesus' gracious gracious offering to people. Why do we say that? Why is that true? What are the very first words that God said to mankind? In Genesis 1.28, he says, Be fruitful 
and uh, I'll start again. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God is blessing mankind, and that blessing is a command. The joy of being with God is to be like God. And so our sin has corrupted our initial experience of his commands because the flesh despises rendering service to God. But that doesn't change the truth in the matter of the fact that commands are our blessing to enjoy. We get to obey God's commands. So there, it's not a conditional statement that if I obey, I, I get God's love. It's that when I obey, I am in God's love. Think of it geographically. If I'm supposed to stay by a fountain in which I drink from, if I depart it and leave a different way, how am I ever going to enjoy it? doesn't mean the fountain was turned off because I left. It just means I am not enjoying it. I'm not receiving it. This was my heartache in that year of college. I had grown up in church and I had become a Pharisee and I didn't know it. I was trying to achieve of the love of God, the joy of God, the acceptance of God, rather than receive it. A true disciple remains in Jesus through faith and obedience. Not to achieve something, but to receive what has already been promised and given. This is beginning to undo a hard heart because it's removing you and I from the equation of making something true and make it happen. And so the nutrients of spiritual life is passing from the vine into the branches. And you know what that nutrient is? It's the truth of Christ, my words you've believed in, my message. But also what do we read in 1 John? That he is the word. You believe in him, the logos. You believe in the love of Christ and the joy of Christ. And he's saying, remain in these things. Remain in me. But then he conditions us. What command are we to follow? What command has he given us? He comes in chapter 15, verse 12 through 17. A disciple's love is actually Christ's love. Look with me, read with me in uh, verse 12. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I've heard from the Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and to produce fruit that your fruit should remain. And so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is my command. Love one another. Like I said, there's no magic formula to discipleship. It's faith and obedience and the rest of your life. Those are the three elements of, a, of, of discipleship. So when God told Adam and Eve to create, fill, and rule over the earth, he was telling them to be like him because what did God do? He created everything, he filled everything, and then he ruled over it. So the very first command he issues is to f create, fill, and rule. And so what he's saying is be like me. The way you remain in me and remain with me is to be like me. So Christ is issuing the same thing. Verses this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. And so the best way to remain in Christ is to be like him. And we issue that way through the love we show one another. It's an unconditional love. When we're in pastor's meeting, when it's the four of us with Jeff, Ryan, Daniel, and I, 
As we're sitting together, we show each other unconditional love because we step on each other's toes. We have egos. We do it. (laughs) It's really surprising, Daniel. Yes, we do. But nonetheless, what is the grounds for our relationship in shepherding this church? That we unconditionally love one another. And so what do I get to experience every Monday? What do I look forward to every Monday morning? The unconditional love of Christ coming through three brothers. I get to experience and remain with Christ's love through the people around me. You and I are no different. We get to issue and have that same amazing command. That's why it is a joy that he issues it. And then he goes on the next step in verse 14 and 15. He calls us something different. He calls us friends. And he calls us friends because he, the same care and love and devotion Christ has for himself, he is saying, I'm going to provide for you. And so the title of friend is not a new stage of freedom or autonomy that we have with Christ. Notice that that's a little bit different. Well, if I'm a friend with someone in here, uh, our relationship, there's freedom, there's some autonomy that we have. This is a different one. So when Jesus says a certain phrase in here that I find very interesting, it's not how we would define friendship. It's different with him. So we don't have to approach Christ the King with uncertainty or flattery. We come to him as one who's trusted, loved, and valued. However, when we think of friendship, we probably don't consider the first part of verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, Kelsey's my best friend, but if I go and tell her, like, you are my best friend as long as you do as I command. If I tell my wife that, I'm going to get this eye up and she's going to say one thing. Try that again. So there's a unique statement. There's a unique relationship going in here. But the ideals of friendship are still the same. What John is saying is actually to, uh, what Jesus is saying and what what John is writing, it's to shock us. That there is a level of, of friendship, there's a level of relationship that we've entered with Christ in one hand. And on the other hand, we have a covenantal responsibility to still be his servants because he is ultimately our master. And so we live between the beautiful tension of these two. And so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we don't have to put out platitudes and flattery to try to appease him. No, we're already on his, inside his inner circle. And so we can approach him with our cares and concerns, our hopes and our desires, our frustrations and uncertainties as a friend. But when we leave, we are still his servants. That's a wonderful relationship to have with the creator of the world. And so what are the ideals of friendship that are being issued to you and I right here? that we have in bonds with Christ. The first one is loyalty. That we are faithful to one another. Friends are faithful. They're going to uphold, care for, support one another. They're going to have each other's backs. They're going to respect one another. So that's first. But then there's the second one. The next one of friendship is intimacy. There is a level of intimacy that we can have with Christ as we do with other friends, that we share in each other's joys and sorrows that we share in each other's joy and sorrows. Does Christ partake in my sorrow? Does he enter into my sorrow? I think he does. In fact, I know it because when I read about the road to Emmaus, as those two disciples are leaving, distraught that their master and their savior, they don't know he's a savior at this moment, but they leave and they're going back to their old way of life. They are broken and they're frustrated and Jesus pops up and they don't know it's him. And they get a little frustrated and perturbed. Why are you talking to us, buddy? Don't you know what happened in Israel? And Jesus could roll his eyes like, let me tell you, I was there. I know exactly what took place. But instead of issuing some retort to them, you know what he asks? He asks a question. When they say, do you not know what happened in Israel? What does he say? What things? Share them with me. Let me enter into your sorrow and your brokenness. 
He could have snapped his fingers and hala, voila, I'm Jesus, I'm it. He doesn't. He enters into the very thing that is the trial that's producing greater fruit in them, into the pruning that is going on in their life. Jesus does that for you and I. But same thing of joy. Does he not know the joy of kids? Absolutely he does. He celebrates kids. When the disciples wanted to keep kids from him, what does he say? Don't ever do that. Kids are always welcome in front of me. And let no one stop them. He knows the joys. And so we can have this intimacy with Christ that other religions and other ways of life that produce some savior, some God that is far distinct, far beyond anything that we could ever equate a relationship to. Christ isn't that way. I call you friends. The next is confidence. The next ideal of friendship that Christ offers in this is confidence. That friends don't disclose secrets even in times of estrangement. That even though Christ departs, that doesn't change the bonds of the relationship. Although he is not physically present in this room next to us, that doesn't remove the confidence that we have in him as our loyal friend and our intimate friend who knows the deepest heart of our joy and our sorrow. So this is why he says, I no longer call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. For I have revealed to you all that the Father has given me. And so the, the friendship, the level of friendship and relationship is going to be increasing And why did he do this? Because we have been a chosen and appointed to produce specific fruit. I hadn't talked about this yet, but what fruit is is Jesus talking about in John 15? Well, we know that the Spirit is going to come and bring to remembrance everything that he's taught these disciples, and through them, Paul is included in that, and Paul continues to teach, and we get to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 uh, through 25, and it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What's the fruit Christ's talking about? This fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Now notice it's not plural. It's singular. I'm sure we, I, I've said it before, I've talked about the fruits of the Spirit. Well, it's not. It's fruit of the Spirit, and this fruit contains all of these attributes. Why? Why is it singular? Because we can fake one or two, but we can't fake them all. There are, there are certain times where you and I can have a loving, kind relationship and then go away, and whew, I'm glad that's over because that was really hard to do. But through the, through the longevity of our Christian life, because there are no off days, there's no Christian retirement age, this is the fruit that is constantly growing and being produced. And we should see a measurable growth throughout the years with Christ. This fruit should grow. I don't think I'm necessarily a patient person, but if I were to compare myself to my 20-year-old self, I know I'm entirely patient. And kind, because I have four amazing boys who are the loudest monsters in the world. And, and when they fight amongst one another, it's who can be the loudest. And I, can now, I now can just sit there and enjoy it and, and, and zone them out and have a patience that only could come from Christ. <laughs> and then I have other people who join in my family or sitting around that don't have kids. They kind of pull their hair out and like, are, are you going to do something about that yelling and that screaming? He says, I can but I don't need to anymore. That's kind of a joke, but I do deal with it. Do you see a a growth in these things in your life over the course of time? 
These attributes, they may not, some of you may have strengths in one and deficiencies in another. Thank God we live in a body, or we have the body of Christ that we, we level each other out, certainly. But nonetheless, I try to partner with people that have compassion, that have a, a big and strong heart, but I see a growth in that for myself. And so we kind of come to this conclusion that what is Jesus doing? He wants us to produce fruit. Now notice there's a caveat to the end of this in John chapter 15. That your fruit should what? Remain. So he's saying remain in me, but then he's, I want your fruit to now remain. I want it to stay. I want it to last. Why? Because what Jesus has done, he wants the disciples to do as well. He wants the fruit that he produced to be produced in his disciples so that the world may know who Christ is. And so, therefore, as followers and friends, we can come to God and ask for greater fruitfulness, inquire about Christ's joy, petition for kindness, cry out for faithfulness. And the greatest that he can offer us is love. And so a disciple's love is Christ's love. A disciple's obedience is Christ's obedience. We want to produce fruit that remains. Well, the only thing that can do that is what's eternal. That's what can remain. And so the nutrients of life that flows from the vine into the branch, the love that flows from the vine into the branch is produced as fruit. That same love, it it transitions through us. And so what happens to us if we remain in Christ with faith and obedience producing lasting fruit? You know what he says? We become disciples. We become disciples. And so this is our charge. Become fruitful disciples. Go back up with me to verse 8. It says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and become my disciples. And I kind of end with a question. Wait, aren't, aren't we already your disciples? Aren't we already your followers, Jesus? Why do you say become? Or some of your translations may so prove to be my disciple. Why? Are we not disciples? The answer is yes and no. The answer is yes and no. We are his disciples, but we aren't what we ought to be as disciples. As we continue remaining in Christ, we are continually becoming the disciples he desires us to be. Discipleship is never over. So we are continually being produced in the likeness of Christ to a greater extent than we were before. And so there's freedom in the ways we can draw near to Christ to increase our ability to be and become greater disciples. And so I'll ask a question. What warms your heart to Christ? If you want to abide in him and remain in him, what what has warmed your heart to Christ in the first place? For me, you know what I found when I was moving up here? People kind of rolled their eyes and says, oh, what are you going to do about the snow? How are you going to do it? You're born and raised in Southern California. You've never had it before. And I've adapted to a degree. And the inside of that degree, I love blowing the snow off my driveway. It it is so peaceful and relaxing. During that time, I'm praying for my family. I'm praying for you. The Lord's teaching me, whether it's through worship that I'm listening to, whether it's I'm just reading or having scripture read to me, or I'm listening to sermons. That 20-minute window is an absolute joy and a blessing. When it snows, it warms my heart to Christ because I'm going to go snow blow the driveway. That's a silly, simple thing, but there are other ways my heart has been warmed to Christ. Now, certainly we read, we pray, we meditate on all those things. Those are requirements the Lord has given us. This is how you stay close to me. But the way in which we do them, he has given us freedom to do them. 
So the way you read, the way you meditate, the way you pray, the way you praise, you have freedom in those things. Express those freedoms. One of them in particular for me is there are times in my life where I read scripture through the eyes of someone else. Meaning, I read biographies or autobiographies of people. Faithful saints who endured the test of time that never compromised their faith, that remained in Christ throughout the whole of their life. I am filled with an extent of joy that's hard to express in words. I read about one, John Patton. He's my favorite missionary or person I've ever read about. I would encourage you to read his autobiography. You will be floored at what the Lord did in his life and filled with joy. When he had muzzles uh, of guns pointed at him, hatches thrown at his door, his wife and his kid died within a month of being on the mission field, and he desired to stay. And over the course of years upon years of sharing the gospel, but getting nothing in return, eventually there came a day when a true disciple was made, and he gave his first communion. And reading about John Patton's response to that moment has filled my life with more joy than I can ever describe to you. It's a joy that for the rest of the week and months, I went out sharing with people my love for Christ because I read it through someone else. It warms my heart. It helps me to abide and to remain in him. Those commands after reading uh, John Patton's biography is no longer difficult. I want to go do them. God, what's another command? What in your life warms your heart to Christ? I know you know that they're important, but there's the tyranny of the urgent that kind of gets in the way of those things. Please sacrifice the tyranny of the urgent to do what's important that warms your heart to Christ. Because there's other things that turn your heart off to Christ, that, draw, uh, that turn it cold. And for a lack of time, I've got to keep rolling. And so as you become disciples, Christ's desires are, there is a cost for that as Christ's disciples. So as you become a disciple, there's a cost. There is an external hope in God that is pruning us, and there's an internal hope of Christ renewing us, but there is the flesh that combats Christ that is abiding in us, and there's an external pressure of the world that is opposing what God is trying to prune us from, which is why Jesus makes it very clear at the last section in 18 through 25, and I'll read this real quick, and it says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. But, I have, but they have no excuse for their sin. For... Uh, excuse me, the one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. This happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Just a caveat, I want to say they were already uh, uh, sinful. Just because if Jesus wouldn't have come, that doesn't mean they wouldn't have gone to hell because they didn't believe and follow the words of God. But what he's saying is the sin of rejecting him is final. They saw with their own eyes, they heard with their own ears, the miracles and the words that I've taught, and they've rejected it. They hated me without a reason. And what he's saying to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Brothers and sisters, this pressure to become a disciple will produce persecution. But the heart of persecution has always been the same and will always be the same. They don't know God. They don't know the love of the Father. Because there's a greater love for self. 
There's a greater desire to achieve for oneself, to provide for oneself, rather than the trust in the God of the universe to do it all. And so our lasting fruit now stands as a witness against those who persecute us. And so when persecution comes, and it will, in whatever various form that it does and shape that it takes, our fruit is to love them in return. In the same way Christ loved them. In the same way Christ was patient with them. In the same way as Christ entered on the donkey in the triumphal entry and the, and, and the Pharisees said, quiet this crowd, Jesus didn't. He accepted it. He accepted imperfect praise and imperfect worship. People are going to usher things at us and say different things. We're going to love just as Christ loved. And so remain, love, and become are the marks of a disciple. And the marks of discipleship. Remember how I started this off? I said that year I had a hardness of heart in which I couldn't sing, in which I couldn't read, I couldn't pray, I, I couldn't worship well, how was that undone? Because when I read this, I realized the responsibility that I had was to believe and to obey. Because I had to remember the way in which I was called, the way in which each and every one of us was called. When Jesus called his first disciples, what did he say to them in Matthew chapter 14, verse 19? And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What's the command in that? Follow. That's it. What's Christ's responsibility in that verse? I will make you fishers of men. All along in my Christian life, I had desired to achieve a status of pleasing God. I had desired to make every act of obedience a means to get his approval, whether I knew it or not. And so each time I fell, each time I faltered, it was a mark and strike against me because that verse three did not stand out to me in this life. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Brothers and sisters, as you leave here today, know that there's a second part to this in partnering with the Holy Spirit as a disciple. That's next week. But this week, as we go to worship, there are two things, faith and obedience. But knowing that that obedience does not produce a, a, a sense of righteousness that you can bring before God as proof, because he gave us those commands and has issued these things of faith that we get to receive and enjoy in the moment, in praise, in worship, because he is giving us a blessing and a gift. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to bless us as we go to worship. I ask for my brothers and sisters in here who do have a hardness of heart when it comes to worshiping, obeying, believing, and enjoying your Son. For the longevity of this life, Lord, I know that we can wander away and depart from you. That we can take ourselves and remove us from experiencing the life and the nutrients and the sustenance that your son is offering to us day in and day out to abide in him, to know what his love is like, to have his joy, to define our life by his peace. Father, may those things in our life that warm our heart to him, may we begin to revitalize those and, and draw near to them and to those which turn our heart off and to make it cold, will we segregate ourselves from those? Will we be willing to make the sacrifice to love you and to abide in you always? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.